I had so forgotten about that. Oh, my goodness. How many remember that? How many? This, a lot's changed in like four years, right? It's a handful of you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> For those of you who are like, what just happened? Uh, <laughs> Uh, a little bit of retro there, my goodness. Um, so obviously we always have a, what we call sermon bumper or something, so that we're not always praying to make transitions. Uh, and uh, anyway, so that one's from the first time that we worked through this series. Uh, so it's kind of the first time we've, it's like been long enough now that we're like, hey, I think it'd be helpful for us to go back through this series. Uh, well, to refresh our mind and uh, to work through this topic, uh, yes, topic again, and um, just, uh, yeah, there's a lot's changed. I think it's been it's three or four years since we've worked through this, and God has changed a lot in this place, that is, not Him changed, but this place changed a lot, make sure we're clear. Uh, so... With that, we're going to work through what we called before the Gospel and Kingdom series. Basically, in a nutshell, what we want to do is trace the, king, the theme of the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, I think that this theme, if you will, ties the entire scriptures uh, to God, together very nicely. You see God's revelation uh, in the kingdom kind of begin to get more clear as time goes on. So I want to give you, as the scriptures go on, that is, I want to give you a couple housekeeping things with this as we get started. First of all, um, I uh, just finished preaching Jonah um, and enjoyed Jonah uh, thoroughly, and I hope that it has been a blessing to you all. I got an email this past week that said, uh, you know, Jonah has had a profound impact in my preaching. Um, I also want to encourage you, uh, Greg's going to be preaching a couple times, it'll be a nine-week series, where Greg's going to be, I also want to encourage you, uh, Greg's going to be preaching a couple times, it'll be a nine-week series, where Greg's going to be preaching a couple times, um, uh, Nick's going to preach, Rusty's going to preach a couple times as well, so uh, I'm excited for that. I'm going to be shifting my focus over the next month, month and a half, to uh, our class on Tuesday nights on gospel fluency. Uh, so I, I am excited to do that, and, um, and actually next week I'll be preaching down the road at University Baptist uh, for them. They're kind of going through a little bit of a hard time, so uh, by God's grace, I'll get to speak the word to them next Sunday. Be praying for them, by the way. Um, we'll be, uh, the last thing I want to say as we work through this, it's going to feel a little more topical, which is not our typical mode of operation, but uh, hopefully each um, sermon will at least be driven largely expositionally, meaning we're going to try and stay in a text and let that text speak of uh, the theme. Um, But we're also, here's what we're trying to do in nine weeks. We're trying to overview the whole Bible. Uh, So you have nine weeks, start reading now every page, and hopefully in nine weeks you can be done with reading the Bible. Um, you probably should start reading now and just not stop. <laughs> uh, no sleeping uh, for the next nine weeks. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But we're, we're just going to try to take in as much as we can of the whole revelation of God in His Word. 
um, which will have profound impact in, in every area of life. As you kind of go, okay, I see how this doesn't fit in God's kingdom, or this does fit in God's kingdom. I see God's plan here, and, and this definitely is a part of God's plan. And, and it'll be particularly helpful as we think about gospel fluency uh, and how the gospel, we can speak the gospel into every aspect of life, um, and both to lost people and those who are redeemed. So all of that, let's jump in. I want to bring our minds to this point. Last week, we ended the book of Jonah, realizing that the entire story of Jonah was this marvelous display of God's grace at work in the life of a man who is battling in the war of God's kingdom versus kingdom of self. If I could kind of summarize Jonah, it's a story of God's grace pursuing a man who's battling the age-old war of kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. And we all, just like Jonah, we talked about Jonah's, Jonah's in the Bible because Jonah's us. Like we are Jonah. We're more like Jonah than we are unlike Jonah. We all, every moment of every day, we are all living either out of the kingdom of self or out of God's kingdom. We're either living for our kingdom or for God's kingdom. An example, the way you respond to your spouse is coming from either a belief that you are God's child, God's citizen in His kingdom, or you are the king of your own kingdom. Another way to put it is this, that you live under the rulership of whichever kingdom you are submitted to in the moment. You see, we live, when we say, let me put it this way, when we live as king of our kingdom, we will not live as citizens. And it's really those two options. Even someone who says, well, I live for the approval of someone else. Like, that person isn't king of that kingdom. The approval I get makes, is me trying to be king of my kingdom. So when we're living as king of our kingdom, we will not live as citizens of God's kingdom. You know, I, th- I think this. We, we are so captivated with the beauty of our kingdom's or the prospect of our kingdom. Like we're, we're just captivated by what could be or what is when it comes to our kingdom. We're enthralled with this. Like we're enthralled with the idea of life looking just this particular way. Like it'd be stunning if it would just look this way. So I'm going to do whatever I have to to make it look this way. We want to be people of this kingdom, right? We, we want to be people. We want to be citizens of our kingdom, we want to be king, ultimately, but we want to be citizens of this kingdom. It's a great kingdom to be a part of that you and I describe and have, have conjured up in our minds and imagined and are striving to, to be a part of. Indeed, we probably want others to be a part of this kingdom that we've created. For some, this looks like actively convincing others to be a part of our kingdom. For others, it looks like getting mad when people don't act in accord to our kingdom. Maybe you see that in the home as you're trying to wrangle your kids to be just really, you know, citizens. And we think, we think, as we toil, 
as we toil to make this happen, to make this kingdom become a reality, we think that once this happen, happens, that rests will come. Right? That we can now rest in our home. Maybe literally or metaphorically speaking. Sweet, gentle peacefulness will be ours. I get it. That's mine. We want our kingdoms. As we think about the idea of the kingdom, uh, I want to turn your attention to, there's a great little book that we use the first time around, we use it this time around as well, by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. It's called God's Big Picture. We're going to take his titles uh, and uh, the pattern of the kingdom and the perished kingdom and all those, those are all his thoughts that he stole from the Bible. Um, so we're going to use those as well. I just want to make sure we give sufficient credit to him. Let me ask you this question. Why try to understand the whole Bible? Why try to understand the whole Bible? I, I, I get it. Like as Christians, oh, it's the whole thing is God's word, so we should. I, I get that. But why? Why try to understand the whole Bible? Why not just the New Testament? Jesus has come. Why try to understand the whole Bible? Uh, there, there's many answers, many uh, uh, answers to this that are that the, all good answers. But the one I want to focus on is that the reason we should try to study the whole Bible is that the gospel has been the picture. The gospel has been the point of the entire Bible. And if the gospel is as important as we say it is, then every page on which it is found is just as important. The gospel is rooted in the history of redemption. And if we don't understand the history of redemption, we're not going to understand the gospel. I think this is true in my own life, that one of the reasons that I don't understand sometimes the, the weight and the glory of the gospel is because I don't understand the Old Testament like I should or could. We should try to understand the whole Bible because the gospel has been the picture all along. I want to give you a, a last kind of point here before jumping into the text. And that is, when we think about interpreting the scriptures, uh, how do we do that? How do we know we're doing it rightly, right? I mean, everyone's got their own interpretation and so on and so forth, but how do we know we're at least in the, the stream of orthodoxy? Right? How do we know that we're in the, the stream of healthy biblical interpretation? Let me pause with that question lingering there. As I was looking back over my old notes, I had almost 6,000 words in my uh, original manuscript. Uh, and if, I don't know if you know this, but I've been preaching, you probably don't know this, but I've been preaching like with 2,500 words. Um, so I tried to pair this thing in this manuscript. Cut out actually a line. Cut out a line. I'm down to like 3,200 words in this manuscript or this outline. Uh, so there's like a whole lot here that I'm just like, I'm like, I want to talk about, but I can't. I just don't have time. What is the main goal in interpretation? I would say this. It's to get to Jesus. Like it's to get to Jesus. Like it's to get to Jesus and Jesus glorifies the Father. Like it's just to get to the Father ultimately, but it's to get to Jesus for our intents and purposes. Like it's, it's to get to Christ. Something I want to talk about in gospel fluency this week is this. 
uh, you don't take people to maturity. You don't develop mature Christians by teaching them spiritual disciplines alone. Because if you teach someone how to read the Bible without how to get to Jesus, they'll end up loving their Bible more than they do Jesus. And that's, I think it's a danger. It's a danger for all of us. The Pharisees knew the Scriptures well. They didn't know who Jesus was. So how do we, how do we raise people to maturity? How do we become mature Christians ourselves? It's in our praying. It's in our Scripture reading. It's in our fasting. It's in our communing together as a church. It's in our singing. We have to get to Jesus. Period. So what's our main goal in interpretation? It's to get to Jesus, to, to put it very simply. Each layer, as we talk about the kingdom, and we're going to define all this as we go, but each layer of the kingdom revelation, as God reveals his kingdom, it has the essential ingredients relating to the saving acts of God and the goal to which they lead. Basically, it's like this. Each layer of God's revelation foreshadows the realities of the gospel. Like each layer just builds and builds and builds. Each movement in Revelation doesn't just move us chronologically, right? But also makes more clear the nature of God's kingdom and the nature of the gospel. So we think as time moves on in the scriptures, it's not just one event adding on to the next, but a picture becoming more brilliant, becoming more clear becoming more detailed, becoming more rich for our eyes to see, for our hearts to believe, for our minds to understand. And ultimately, as this builds, I guess builds for you guys, right? It reaches its fullness in Christ, which is the full reality of God's revelation. So if we are going to be citizens of God's kingdom, we need to understand, like, at, at the very basic uh, level, uh, the pattern of God's kingdom. What is the pattern of his kingdom? <coughs> Excuse me, but we need to not just understand the pattern of God's kingdom, we must also be captivated by God's absolutely stunning glory on display in his kingdom. If we're not, it'll just be another piece of information to log into our long line of information that we do absolutely nothing with. Listen, there's, there's a kingdom. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Because why? Because the king in this kingdom is beautiful and glorious. See, the worship of God as the king of this kingdom must replace the worship of yourself as the king of your kingdom. It's not, it's not just I going to move from this kingdom to this kingdom. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of what has captivated your heart. Right? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the, the being worships. Right? It, the soul gives way to. Only when you see the glory of God's kingdom Will you forsake the ruins of your kingdom? So with that, I want to talk about the pattern of the kingdom. Let me read this a pace. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. 
And then I'm going to read, I'm going to skip a handful of verses, largely because Greg read most of this earlier, then we'll go to Genesis 2. I just wanted to get all of this in here. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 1. I'll tell you which verse I'm going to go to. I hate skipping verses, just for the record, but I needed to pull back some time for us. All right, let's go. Beginning, first one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. On the verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over... Uh, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that, comes on, or that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Everything that has every beast of the earth, and to every breath of of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water water the garden, there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see 
what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Fathers, we study your scriptures, continue to study your scriptures this morning. Father, may we have eyes to see the glorious king of this kingdom, that we might find ruins of ours, be captivated by yours. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Here we have a vision of what the world was meant to be, how the world was meant to be, what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed, how it's supposed to function. What I want to give you, first of all, is four foundational truths concerning God's kingdom. Four foundational truths that we see in these few verses. Hopefully by the end you'll see at least the seed of the gospel coming forth. Even in, these, even in these verses, even, maybe even before we get to Genesis 3. We see the kingdom as it was originally created. First thing I want you to see is this. The first foundational truth is that God is the author of creation. Now, I, I get it. We know this. Like, like most of us in this room know this. But we have to name it in order to build upon it. God is the author of creation, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? God is the only being to have existed eternally. He was not created. There has never been, another way to say it, and there has never been a time when God did not exist. Even Jesus himself exists, existed eternally before his time in the flesh on the earth. Genesis 1-3 and following, it says, And God said, I'm not going to read the rest of it, we just skipped over most of those verses. But in God said, God simply said the word, and each item came into existence. Alright, so let, let me help you for a second. Christians who hear the Bible taught all the time. That's the king of this kingdom. How many times do you speak a word and it doesn't happen? Right? I mean, I'm I'm being half funny. You can laugh a little bit, but how many times do you speak a word and it immediately goes to kids? Not even just like, of course, my mind immediately goes to kids, right? (laughs) Go do this. I can't can't even get a four-year-old to do what I tell him to do. And God can speak a word and the mountains shake. This king of this kingdom can speak a word and something comes into existence. 
And I can't even speak a word to get my four-year-old or my five-year-old. I guess I, right now I don't have a four-year-old technically. Uh, I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old. I can't even get them many times. It came into existence out of nothing. Out of, I mean, let's just stop for a second and ponder these words. There's lots of debate as to, is it literally 24 hours? Was it, lit, was it a day as a thousand days? You know, that kind of thing. I don't want to get into that. What I want you to see here is that God created. He spoke and it came into existence. He created all things. If you go back, a verse to verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? We see the Spirit present here at the beginning of creation. Which one of us has a Spirit that's hovered over the waters? John 1.3 says this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, how all-encompassing of a statement. He's referring here to Jesus. Say, who, who created? God created. Well, I think technically Jesus did. That's what John tells us. That Jesus is God. But Jesus was the agent that carried out the will of God in creation. He was the one, John tells us, that made everything. Again, and we, we see, when we're king of our kingdoms, the way we function is everyone die for my sake. But this king of this kingdom died for the sake of his people. Jesus was the agent that carried out the will. What I want you to see also here, God is the author of creation, but how is God the author of creation? You see the entire trinity present in creation. You see God the Father. You see the Holy Ghost, as my six-year-old likes to call him. And you see Jesus. You see, we readily understand God as creator of our soul. And so therefore the spiritual becomes super important to us. But since God created also the physical, which we see here very clearly in creation, it, the physical, is to be regarded as equally important. We are not to regard this earth as something to be disposed of. Just for the record, I'm not making a political statement for the record. I realize this and its connectedness of recent events. This. You see, we're not, we're not to look at our body. Listen, we're, here's what I want you to see. We're not, we're not to look at our bodies as something to be saved from in order to live in the non-material world in which God lives. I know we like think about like the flesh. Obviously, there's an evil aspect to the flesh, but the 
it's not about us just escaping the, the material world to live in the non-material. So like when we think about this like in terms of evangelism, sometimes we just skip over all the material aspects of someone's life and go straight to the immaterial. And, and, and that's important too. That is necessarily always bad, but the material is important too. The physical is important too. And a lot of times, because we skip over that part of God's creation in someone else's life, they don't understand why the spiritual is important. Like, they don't... As we, as we think about gospel fluency, right, we, we have to engage the physical... For many times, if we're talking about evangelism, you engage the spiritual by working through the physical. Right, because we're whole beings, and our gospel is holistic. You see, there is no sacred versus secular thing, right? We we've talked about this before, but there's this not there. There is there's no conversing simply about secular things or then sacred things. God created all things, and as such, we should regard all things as sacred. Our use of the physical is sacred as well. You know, I think oftentimes we manipulate this thought, right, of secular, sacred, in order to justify doing things we know that God would not be pleased with. What we see in the beginning, is that God is the author of creation. And and as we work through the Scriptures, we'll begin to see that this is the journey from creation to new creation. From creation to new creation. I can't let... He will redeem everything at this point. He made everything in the beginning, and He will redeem everything by the end. So God is the author of creation. That's one foundational truth. That's, that's, well, foundational to understanding God's kingdom. The second is that God is the king of creation. God is the king of creation. You say, well, yeah, because he's the author. Good. I, I hope you draw that conclusion. I hope that's your, oh, he's the author, so that means he must be the king. Good. I, I hope that is your conclusion. Since God created everything, that means he is Lord of everything. Even when you and I, so we think about in terms of like when we are inventors, when we create something, we are the master to create creation. We have to understand that our ability to create was a creation of the creator. And so therefore he owns even our ability to create. Therefore he owns whatever it is that we created, right? It's his. He's the king. Of creation. Right, this means both the physical and the spiritual. This means both the sacred and secular, if you will. David wrote in Psalm 95, 3-7, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Listen, let me pause here for a second. You want to watch a picture of someone struggling with kingdom of self versus kingdom of God? Go read the Psalms, Right? Here we have literally a king of a kingdom who could tell, speak a word and people go do it. 
Listen to his words here. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. In his hands. His hands for me is his. He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's the king of this kingdom. God is far above all that He has created, and He is distinct from it. Like, this would explain, of many things, but this explains God's hatred for idolatry. To worship anything in creation is to speak less of God's worth. Right? By definition, something that is created is less than God. This is why, as, as a church, we talk about idolatry so much. I was in a meeting this past week, and I had to explain that as a church, and we talk about idolatry, like this is commonplace. Like it's commonplace, unfortunately, because of sin, but it's commonplace because we also understand the Scriptures. And we have to address this issue. This is why idol worship is so fundamental. It's Because to worship anything else is to speak less of God's worth than what is due Him. This is why when I'm fighting for anything in my kingdom, for me to be king, for me to rule over, for me to have my way, is to say that God's kingdom is subservient, subpar to my kingdom. Listen, our duty is to submit to Him as our King. Let me say it another way. Our privilege is to submit to Him as our King. It's both. He is owed our submission. And we get to submit to Him. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And he goes on, And by your will they existed and were created. Again, right? Again, think about this. This is the kingdom that you and I and our kingdom of selves are up against. This is the king that we put ourselves up against. This is the king that we choose not to worship, to worship something else. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And simply because you willed, they existed. 
I don't want to like jump too far, but I think about God's choosing power, right? His electing power to, to make for himself a people. He does that, and it happens by his will. He did it here in creation. So not only is God the author of creation, God is the king of creation, and human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Let me explain this. We, we are part of the created order. But we're not just animal. We were made in the image of God. That's what sets us apart. We were made in the image of God. Sets us apart. Made in the very image of God. In the Genesis one twenty seven, him male and female and his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, we reflect something of God's nature in a way that nothing else in creation does. Think about this in terms of parenting, right? If we rule with the kingdom of self, for the sake of the kingdom of self, then we will want our children to bear something of that image with all of its failures. That's not our job. We, it's not our responsibility. It's not our place. It's not our. It's to help them reflect the image of the one who actually did create them. So we have a dignity, and have been set above the rest of creation. Uh, listen, like listen, like we got to understand, like our culture, our world, school systems, books. It's weird because they, in one sense, try to set us at the level of animals. And in another sense, try to set us as the kings of this world. How does that, like it doesn't happen, like it doesn't make any sense. But that's the absurdity, right? I mean, that's the absurdity of Satan and his dominion. But instead, the Bible tells us that we have a dignity and have been set above the rest of creation. And then God gives us the responsibility to rule over the rest of creation. I mean, think about that. <laughs> Again, I think about in, in parenting, like uh, giving my boys responsibilities. <laughs> like, it's awesome. I get, but they don't, I mean, at this point, they still think it's awesome, right? Because they, oh, I get to do these things. And I understand there'll come a day where they will not. Hopefully, help them understand that, listen, you get to be a part of this kingdom. Like, you get to be a, a servant in this house. God gives us a responsibility to rule over the rest of creation. Who, this, again, I, trying to compare and contrast your kingdoms. Who in here has the authority to give anybody else the authority to rule over creation? None of us. Yeah, I cannot say to my son, you thou shall now be the ruler over creation. Instead, 
God has this. We have been entrusted by God to care for all of His creation. And we are the pinnacle of this creation. To God is king, God is author. Humans are the pinnacle of creation. Number four, the goal of creation is rest. Goal of creation is rest. I know, I know, like, we're also bent on uh, works, earning our way. The goal of creation is rest. So now we come to the climax of the creation account. I want to read to you from Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Let's examine this account very quickly. Each other day, don't take my word for it, go read it later. Every other day of creation ends with, quote, and there was evening and there was morning. Right? The first day God does this, there was evening and then there was morning. What happens here in 1 through 3? That phrase isn't there. That phrase isn't there. I propose to you that God has been resting ever since. God did his work of creation, and now God is resting. Now, I know, I know, I, I, I can just feel some of the hearts in here, like minds going like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a sec. God has been resting ever since. Hold that thought. I believe God wants us to live with him in that seventh day. Sharing, sharing in his rest and enjoying his perfect creation. I think that's the goal. Let me say that again. I think he wants us to live with him in that seventh day. That's the creation account. Creation, morning and night. Creation, morning and night. Created, or creation, morning and night. Seventh day. He rests. There is no morning and night that happens there. We're still there. He wants us to live with Him in that seventh day. Adam and Eve were meant to live with Him in that seventh day. In that rest. I mean, think about our world right now. How much of a frenzy our world is in right now. And has been for thousands of years. Because they know nothing of God's rest. Now listen, I don't think this is the rest in the sense of doing nothing. Like that's how we translate rest. But this is the rest, hear this clearly. This is the rest in the sense of living in the peace and tranquility of His perfect creation. Does that make sense? So it's working, it's doing but in the peace and tranquility of His perfect order.
let's think about our kingdoms, right? Our kingdoms. You will not find that sense of living and peace and tranquility. You will not find that in your kingdom. You're looking for it. That's why you pursue it. Because you want the peace and restfulness that comes from that. Why? Because we were created to long for that. We were created to long for peacefulness, to long for tranquility. We were created to long for rest. We were created to rest with God in the seventh day. The problem is, is we think we'll get that. If we can just orchestrate the events to accomplish the vision for our kingdoms. We think, i got to get all my work done and then I can rest. But there's a sense in which we should rest regularly, certainly without doing work, right? That we, because we'll get to that later, but, but we should be, I heard a, a guy, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but a uh, speaker talk about skole, which is like restful learning. How do we teach, how do we be restful in the things that we do, particularly education? How do we be restful in the work that God has for us? Right? But here's the reality, though, is that most of the time, we don't experience rest in the work that we do, either because we're doing that work for our kingdom or we're simply doing the wrong work. It could be good work, but for our kingdom, or it could just be completely the wrong work. But work, listen, work that has been redeemed, like our understanding and our doing, and it's being done for the glory of God, for His kingdom, that's when it can be done in peace and tranquility. That's when it can be done restfully. Restfully. What, are you physically going to get tired? Well, probably. But do you understand how much of our tiredness is because our hearts and minds are not at rest? They're anxious. Why? Because there's this battle going on inside of us of our kingdom versus God's kingdom and us getting what we want and not happy with God getting what He wants and We don't understand how much of that is the cause of our distress. Drive down the road next time in some traffic. Not that we have much traffic around Dayton, uh, apparently, compared to people who live on the West Coast, But uh, as I've heard. Uh, But uh, driving down, and you see, and you go, what are all these people in a hurry for? I'm making some assumptions, but what are all these people in a hurry for? What are I'm trying to get there. Get there. Get. Just trying to lay building blocks for their kingdom, one little step at a time. You want to know how to speak the gospel into someone's life, like, like to address the physical and work your way to the spiritual. They're in a hurry. They're in a frenzy, trying to get something done. We should continue on. So four foundational truths. Next, three things we ought to do. Three things we ought to do. Now everyone's going, all right, cool. Give me something to do so I can go earn my righteousness. 
Stop it, right? You're not building your kingdom, right? It's God's kingdom. First is this. Live as the people of God. Live as the people of God. Right? I mean, that, that's like an all-encompassing thing. But live as the people of God. Again, we're talking big picture here. God's big picture. Live as the people of God. You can flesh this out however uh, is appropriate according to the scriptures in your life. The pattern of the kingdom. All right, here's what we see in Genesis. The, here, man was created as the people of God, right? Not the, not the animals, not the plants. Here, man was created as the people of God. Here in the garden, we have life as it was meant to be. God is the author and keeper. God is the caretaker of man. Man cares for God's creation. God cares for man. His people. God provides everything for man. He even provides for man a helper and a companion fashioned by God's hand specifically for that task, for that purpose, for that void. And the pattern, even, I want you to see, even the pattern of the relationship between man and woman, the authority and submission, serves as a foreshadow of the coming reality of the church to Christ and Christ to the church, both the sacrifice and the submission. You see the pattern of the kingdom. Now, according to the gospel, we understand, right, so now if we're going to go to the New Testament and we start to see more of this is, I'm going to try and reach ahead, or for you guys, reach ahead in the chronology here to to think back on the pattern of the kingdom. According to the gospel, we understand that this kingdom was just shy of God's ultimate plan. Right? This was his ultimate plan here, but it plan. It's a part of a, a bigger plan went awry. You see, in this kingdom, it's a part of an ultimate plan. It's a part of a, a bigger picture. You see, in this kingdom, the people of God would soon attempt to usurp the authority of God, to, to overthrow him, if you will. Ultimately, the garden is a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come in Christ. I'm going to explain that in a second. That Jesus would be an Adam, A-D-A-M, that would never fail, right? The gospel has always been also, as we see here in Genesis, like, and, and moving forward in progressive revelation, the gospel we also see here has been open to all men. Just something, again, that a lot of times we miss in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve are to to be God's people and to be fruitful and multiply. What's that mean? All people are to be God's people. But what you see, again, as this kind of progresses on, that God chooses the Israelites to find picture through the gospel. But Israel was to be the people of God as a picture of what was to come. Like they were supposed to live perfectly under God's rule as God's people, giving a foreshadow of the one who would come, the Christ. You see, we live as the people of God. How do we do this? do this through Christ. 
there's no magic bullet. Like, there's, no, there's no magic ten steps to this. We're the people of God only through Jesus. The problem, though, is that just like the first Adam, we fail and we do so miserably. This is why we must abide, wash. This is why we need washed in his sin, or washed in his sin. That was wrong. Washed in his blood and our sin washed in his blood, right? That's why we need that. And then why we must abide in it every moment afterwards. Kingdom self, kingdom of God. What are you abiding in? I'm going to abide in my ability to rule and bring about what I want, or I'm going to abide in the blood of Jesus as God's means of accomplishing His redemption and what He wants. It's my two options. We abide in Christ as we live by faith in His Word and repent of our sin, and we do it together as His people. Remember, I want to remind you, we are a people, not just a person. That God's corporateness to His people is from the very beginning. Even the election of Abraham was for the corporate blessing of the world. We are God's people doing God's work through Jesus. Christ doing his work through us, however you want to say that. See, through Jesus as the head of our race, we live as God's chosen people. We do, that's our only hope, right? It's our only hope. So the pattern of the kingdom, the first is that we are to live as people of God. Secondly, we live in God's place. Right? Adam and Eve were the people of God. They were created in His image. And then they lived for a short time faithfully to God's covenant made with Him. And they lived in God's place. Again, the pattern of the kingdom. So God places Adam in an environment, hear me, that will, through God's grace, care emotional, mental, everything. Going to be cared for physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, everything. It's going to be cared for. God creates this place. Adam and Eve are given great responsibility to take care and tend to the needs of the place where man will reside. Adam and Eve both are now carrying out the plan and responsibility that God had given them, namely ruling over creation. And man is to live in the seventh day of rest for the rest of his life as he follows God. So he's to work the garden while living in rest as he follows God's rule. At this point, no authority has been abused. They work the land and they care for it. They do as God has commanded them to do. According to the gospel, this place is foreshadowing a place where God's people will find rest and joy in Him. Amen? This ultimately will be the eternal presence of God through Jesus Christ that when Jesus comes to this earth, He tells us right, that the kingdom is upon you. 
what Jesus literally means is this, is that the perfect kingdom is here. God's people, that's me. God's place, it's where I go. And it's here. Again, think about that. Think about this, this war of kingdoms. How many of us can say that when we walk into a room? The kingdom of God is upon you, right? Now, in a sense we can, but why? Because of Jesus, not because of you and I. But Jesus can walk, and every place he goes, he can say with utter authority, the kingdom of God is here. Wow. That's his kingdom. We don't have that. He literally means the perfect kingdom is here. The thing you've all been waiting for, it's here. The shadow is gone and the reality is here. And those who are adopted sons and daughters, Jesus, for the second Adam, enter into the kingdom of God through Jesus. So we're to live in God's place. This is where Christ is. Listen, how much of our, like, uh, when we're mentally, emotionally just at unrest? If you go back and think about those times, how, how like, are you abiding in Christ at that moment? I, don't, I, I mean, certainly you're not, but I'm saying, like, Actively, like, thinking, are you, or, or is that furthest from your mind? Now, now, sometimes I think we can be at unrest and tension and fighting to abide in Christ, right? That would be, that's good. But how much of it is just, it's just it's not? Like, we don't want to be where Christ is. We want to kind of fix this and then go be where Christ is. We want to kind of get our feet clean enough so then we can go where Christ is so He can wash our feet. But we are to live in God's place. And this is where Christ is. As we who are in Christ, the redemption of all things is taking place. We are to bring, listen, we are to bring redemption to everywhere we go since we are the people of God. See, live in God's place. So God's place is to go where we go as God's people. You know, the, the Genesis mandate to be fruitful and multiply, right, is repeated in the end of Matthew where go and make disciples of all nations. Like, we're to do the same thing. Like, but we're to spread God's image. How? Right? By Christ. And we're to bring redemption. Again, thinking back to the beginning, this is not just the spiritual, but the physical as well. We live in God's place as we abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Thirdly, we're to live under God's rule. Live under God's rule. Live in God's place. Live as God's people. Live under God's rule. The pattern of the kingdom, right? There is no doubt that God will be the one in charge. I don't know if we have figured that out or not, but there is no question as to who will be in charge. 
God set the rules from the very beginning. Verse 17 of chapter 2 in Genesis. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Listen, I want to point out something for you here about God's rulership. God is not being oppressive. We in this world, I mean, yes, there is oppressive authority. Absolutely. And it is wrong, it's evil, it's sinful, but it will not go undealt with. But God's authority is never oppressive. He is not withholding something good from Adam and Eve. He is protecting them from something very bad. It's actually the opposite of oppression. It is for their flourishing that God gives them this instruction. You see, according to the gospel, we see that for a brief period of time, Adam and Eve are foreshadowing the perfect obedience of Jesus. Do you see that? Like, don't read on to chapter 3 too quick, right? Enjoy God's creation and 1 and 2. They are foreshadowing some measure of perfect obedience that is to come in Christ. Jesus will be born a man, live under God's rule perfectly. He will defeat sin and death on the cross and through His resurrection. He will become the new Adam, the perfect Adam. And He will be the new kingdom of God. We as the people of God should bear much fruit as we live under God's rule. Right? Because God's rule is for our good. It's for our flourishing. We as the people of God should do this. We are made capable to live under God's rule as we uphold Jesus, as we look to Him, as we worship Him, as we forsake all other worships. For right, through, the gospel of, through the power of the gospel, we seek to prepare for all of eternity by living under God's rule now. Do you hear that? Like our actions today are for eternity. Like, at least should have eternity in mind. I want to land this plane with a few thoughts here. The, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of self. We see a pattern of the kingdom, right? God's people, that's Adam and Eve. God's place is the place of God's care and presence, which is the garden. We see Adam and Eve living under God's rule. We've not gotten to Genesis 3 yet. And they enjoy God's great blessings. I mean, however long this was that they lived in this state, how amazing that must have been. But it doesn't take long for man to ruin this, right? Right? It's the next chapter. We don't know chronologically how long, but we know the next chapter here it comes. And we will begin to see the story of God's redeeming man back to himself. We'll begin to see the story unfold. We'll begin to see foreshadowing, further foreshadowing of the gospel and the kingdom to come. It's through the pattern of the kingdom that we will see that Christ is the perfect kingdom of God. 
Right? Ultimately, Jesus will be the perfect person of God, the people of God. He'll be the perfect place of God, and he'll have perfect obedience under God's rule. And through Jesus, we become a part of this kingdom. Right? Through the blood of the king. Being washed in the blood of our against his kingdom. Enemy like sins, right? Against his kingdom. And he will conquer us by the blood to be citizens of his kingdom. How does he do that, right? He, he breaks our minds to see his glory. Recenterates our hearts, right? He opens our hearts, our minds to see His glory, our sinfulness, to bring about repentance in our heart for the treason that we have committed and, and to bring about new confession. Confession not of our kingliness, but confession of His kingliness and His redeeming work as King. And as that happened, God wants us to live in the rest of His kingdom, meaning the restfulness of His kingdom. And through Jesus, we can. But I want to encourage you with something now. As we, all right, this is going to build over the next eight weeks. I want you to rest. We can for rest. We can know something of that rest now. And I don't think such a reflection of our heart's captivation, of what we are captivated by. Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, come to me, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Like we, there's a sense of restfulness now that if we understand the gospel or believing the gospel, forsaking our kingdoms, embracing God's kingdom, that we can have restfulness there. But ultimately, what happens is we want to be king of our kingdom. We want to be the king of our kingdom where we're the one redeeming all things and ordering all things. We want to be the righteous rulers. We must forsake, repent of that rulership and trust in God's redeeming rulership and work through His Son, Jesus. Only there will we find rest. Only there. When we rest in Christ, we are resting in His perfect kingdom. And we have a taste of that now. We rest in being God's people. We rest in God's place. We rest under God's rule. Place of peacefulness and tranquility, even in the midst of the chaos around us. Jesus said, in Luke eleven twenty. I'll leave you with this. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for sending your kingdom. Your kingdom found in the reigning, ruling God. Father, thank you that our rescue, our rescuer has come. That, our son, that your son Jesus has come to, to rescue us from these failed attempts at kingdom building. Where we want to be ruler and we want to be creator and we want to be redeemer and we want to be all powerful and we want to order all things. And through this, we have created such a mess. Father, please, direct our hearts. Can't do it. Confess that we want, and that we want you to be, that we want to be citizens. Every moment of every day in your kingdom. Give us the, the grace to be satisfied with nothing. The kingdoms we have built bitter to our tongues. Father, for your glory and our good. Father, for your glory and our good. Amen. Would you guys stand? We're going to partake in communion this morning. I want you guys to go ahead and stand with me. I want to encourage you as we partake in communion. I, if I encourage you. If there's unrepentant sin in your life, I encourage you to not partake. Uh, instead of sin in your life, I encourage you to, sin, encourage you to not partake. Uh, instead, I'd encourage you to sit there, pray, ask for forgiveness, be forgiven, and partake. If we're going to think about the kingdom, we can't think about the kingdom without thinking about the price paid for the securing of this kingdom. Let's do this together.